The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome everybody to Liberating Arts to the Liberation Channel. I'm Jonathan Tran from Baylor University. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing today Jennifer Hurt. Let me say a little bit of an introduction for Jennifer so y'all know a little bit more about her. Uh, Jennifer Hurt is the Gilbert Stark Professor of Christian Ethics um, and Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs at Yale University's Yale Divinity School. Her previous books, which were wildly influential in the broader guild, uh, include Putting on Virtue, The Legacy of the Splendid Vices, and Religion and Faction in Hume's Moral Philosophy, as well as these roles at Yale, uh, as long as being a teacher and a scholar there. Uh, she is also currently the president of the Society of Christian Ethics. So Jennifer, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to be with us today. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's really an honor to be part of this podcast. Yeah. Okay, well, what we're going to be talking about is Jennifer's new book, um, uh, Forming Humanity, Redeeming the German Bildung Tradition um, by the University of Chicago, the press of the University of Chicago Press. Um, so Jennifer, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, an achievement in, in a number of different ways, but I want to ask you to just give our listeners, if you will, um, somewhat of a background to the book, how you arrived at the topic, uh, your goals in writing it, and its relationship maybe to your previous uh, academic work. Yeah, absolutely. So the germ of the idea for this book really came out of a long-standing interest in thinking about the, the lit thinking about literature and ethical formation, and there's a an ongoing conversation about the importance of the novel and ethical formation and Martha Nussbaum has been an important uh, contributor to that conversation. And there's also been a, a theological strand of reflection, both on the importance of the novel in ethical formation. And then of course, on the, the role of the Bible and, and uh, within narrative theology, really the sense of the, the absolute centrality of, of narrative formation for Christian, uh, Christian identity and Christian, uh, Christian practices being narratively rooted. Right? So, so practices and narratives that are forming one another and forming Christian identity. So it was really thinking about the relationship between those two conversations that got me started. And then I just became aware that this conversation about Bildung in the late 18th and early 19th century German context was a site where these very issues were being discussed very energetically um, in, of course, somewhat different terms. Um, but I just decided, wow, I really want to dive into that and, and, and think about how that might perhaps productively reconfigure our own, our own understanding of these issues. Um, so I was, I was very interested, for example, in the what often gets called post-liberal theology's notion of Christians as living within the world of the text of, of scripture, of the Bible. But 
I'm also concerned that that can be understood in, in an overly simplistic way because Christians are, of course, living within multiple narratives that are overlapping and you never simply can live within the world of the Bible. You have many lenses that are coming together. So that was very much in, in my mind when I dove into the project. And I also certainly saw the project as building on my work, especially in, in putting on virtue, um, where I was exploring anxiety about the acquired virtues as a kind of displacement of divine agency. So if human beings can acquire virtues on their own, well, what does that say about the role of, of divine grace in informing um, human virtue? And I, and I think that much of modern thought really is struggling with these issues of divine versus human agency seen as competitive with one another. And so this project was telling, a, a could be seen as a kind of continuation of the story that I told in Putting on Virtue, where I really, I take it up to Kant um, and not beyond. And um, I, I, I recall a visit to Duke where someone asked me, well, where's Hegel in your story? Uh, so in a sense, putting on, informing uh, humanity as a response to that question, where I take the story up to Hegel and I try to, to say something about how um, these thinkers fit within that story. but. So in that sense, it, it continues to express my deep interest in questions about the virtues, um, issues of, of secularization, of, of moral thought, of divine and human agency. And I'm always here trying to get beyond easy narratives of, of secularization or of decline, anti-modernist narratives, anti-enlightenment narratives. And I'm always trying to tell a more complicated story. And, and we'll certainly, as in all things, get back to Hegel later on. Uh, but yeah, it's really in the texture of the way you tell the story um, that is really impressive. So I thought we might jump in um, to one of the things I thought was kind of one of the broad arcs um, or themes or arguments of the book. You talk about what you call a renovated Christian humanism. And you say that it, quotes accepts the task of the formation of humanity through projects of individual and collective self-realization as participation in the reditus of creation to a radically transcendent God whose life is overflowing self-gift and invitation into friendship. So I, I want to ask you to say more about that. On the one hand, that summarizes a lot of the book, but it also has a very specific set of claims in it. So could you unpack those for us? Absolutely. I, I didn't realize that sentence was such a mouthful until you read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, there is this discussion in the late 18th, early 19th century German context about Bildung. It's very clearly a discussion about how do we form people who are capable of taking responsibility for themselves and of taking off from, from Kant's notion of, of throwing off the self-incurred immaturity. So how do we take responsible, responsibility for ourselves and for our societies? How do we form people who can form themselves into being capable of taking part in collective self-government. It's very much a political project as well as an aesthetic and an ethical project. And it's easy to read this as claiming something like the telos of building of this ethical formation just is humanity. And that's it. Uh, and I mean, forming humanity is the title of my uh, of my book. So in in a sense, I'm I'm saying yes, that's right. But I'm also trying to trace 
ways in which this vision is deeply rooted in medieval Christian humanist notions, mm -hmm. which understand human beings as distinctive in creation because while all created things glorify God just by being what they are, right? just in being God's creatures, human beings are at least capable of glorifying God in, in a, another very specific way by knowing themselves as creatures, knowing the world as created, knowing themselves and the world as, as held in being by God's creative love, and, and um, answering that um, with responsive love. So that is a, a vision of human creative agency, a positive vision of human creative agency, uh, of human self-realization that's not seen as rejecting or competing with God's agency, but ra rather is participating in God's creative intention for the world, uh, which is finally an, an invitation to shared life or, or to friendship, to a kind of, of reconciled um, fellowship. So I'm trying to trace the connections between that medieval Christian humanist vision and this, this discussion of Bildung in the German context that can so easily be read as just human autonomy, period, human independence, rejection of transcendence. And you know, I, I certainly want to acknowledge that there were thinkers who understood themselves to be throwing off um, Christian tradition, um, most often because they regarded Christian institutions as, uh, as oppressive and as, as um, really holding back uh, efforts to develop this kind of responsibility for self and society that they wanted to encourage. And Humboldt um, would be probably the one in the character in my, in my story who most neatly fits into that. But others most certainly didn't. Um, and the ones who most obviously do not are Herda and Hegel, both of whom are theologians. Um, and they're, they're heterodox theologians. So I'm also not in any way trying to claim them for orthodoxy, but I am trying to model um, a richer and more interesting conversation between Christian theology and um, heterodox thought. And this is, uh, we may come back to Bart at some later point in our conversation, but, but Bart in, enters in as a theological interlocutor and he, he agrees with this, I think. Um, so when he engages with Hegel, for example, he, he says, well, Hegel's right. You know, God is not a member of the class of beings. God is not just another agent among other agents. And from Hegel, we can be reminded that um, a refusal of a kind of anthropomorphic divine subjectivity has something salutary about it. I mean, there might be times at which we nurture a kind of piety by engaging in that kind of talk. And there might be other moments where it's salutary to prevent a kind of idolatry by not engaging in that, that kind of discourse. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly come back to Bart. One of the things I thought was interesting is that people often read the Bart, this, that's the Kierkegaardian Bart, over and against Hegel in the same way that Kierkegaard was over. But you, you have a much more nuanced and I think a profitable reading. So I'll, I want to come back to that. 
Um, I wonder if we could turn a little bit maybe to some institutional questions, because as you know, liber liberating arts is really interested in kind of the place of the humanities, the liberal arts, and the institutions of higher ed um, in this uh, period of time. So um, the way you talk about Biodong as ethical formation, how does that relate to um, your administrative roles and leadership at Yale? As I said earlier, not only are you a, a scholar there and a teacher, but you serve as Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, which is a hugely important role. And I imagine you think about these questions a lot. Uh, so tell us, maybe you could help us out. Just tell us what an academic dean does. Um, and then how does an academic dean who thinks a lot about ethical formation um, think of put all this together? Great, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, an academic dean answers lots of emails. <laughs> but, but I will try to go beyond that. So, so my, I mean, my primary responsibility in this role is um, briefly put, oversight over curricular and degree programs. Um, and it's just, I mean, it's a very interesting time to be involved in administrative leadership in theological education. Um, and given the demographic decline in mainline denominations and of American Christianity more generally, you know, our students can't expect to just go on to pastor wealthy congregations. Right? And neither, given the decline in the academic humanities, can they necessarily expect to sail on into doctoral programs and on into the academy. So jobs are disappearing in seminaries and divinity schools. Jobs are also disappearing in departments of religious studies. So, I mean, these are just well-known facts. And if we think about Yale Divinity School, roughly a third of our graduates go on in traditional forms of ordained ministry. Roughly a third are going on to further study. Um, and the rest of them, which is actually a growing piece of the pie, are going on to other forms of non-traditional ministry, other learned professions, leadership in the nonprofit sector. So we are both redefining ministry, we're redefining leadership. Um, and, it, you know, I, I think when I arrived at Yale, I thought there might be a morale problem. And I have not found that to be the case. I mean, there's really a remarkably positive and creative ethos to this place, which has been very life-giving. But, but I think it's certainly a, a context in which one needs to be creative. One needs to be doing more than simply um, maintaining the status quo. And, I mean, the identity of, of Yale Divinity School is, is um, an interesting one in this moment. So it's, it's long been a place that's deeply nourished by Christian theological traditions, you know, very, very positively oriented toward theology, toward theological tradition, but not in an overly deferential or closed way. So I would say when it comes to thinking about how this relates to, to something of Bildung, the, the ethical formation that we are engaged in is one that regards rootedness and tradition as essential to having anything to say, right? To having any identity, but it doesn't regard the task as one of just kind of maintaining or guarding. So the question is always like, how can these traditions, how can these practices, these conceptual resources, how can they be life-giving? And how can they lead us to God and to one another and not just lead us into various forms of, of idolatry or domination? 
So when I talk about Bildung as um, cultivating people who can take responsibility for themselves and their social practices, that's what needs to happen here, right? That we need to take a kind of active responsibility for our traditions. And that means we can't accept the divide between tradition and critique, right? Or between right. preservation and liberation. Right. It has to be theological critique and it's always funded by the tradition. I mean, I think this just makes theological sense. I mean, to call sin original is right. to mean that we cannot reach back behind the fall. That's right. not what we can do. Fallenness is threaded through all of our traditions. Um, but to confess creation is to say that we're not just fallen, right? We're not just evil. We're affirmed as good and beloved. So that's, you know, that funds this constant critical return to tradition, to our practices, um, and to thinking about the ways in which they are oppressive and dominating, but also liberative and life-giving. Well, I wonder if you can maybe expand the lens uh, in terms of that account of formation, uh, taking responsibility for yourself, uh, commitment to uh, fidelity to practices. Um, maybe beyond the humanities, what about um, the social sciences, STEM, uh, which of course tons of undergrads are involved in, uh, professional education, law school, social work. How, how, does, how does this work in those arenas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where I think this, this connection that I'm trying to draw back to medieval Christian humanism is, is really helpful because insofar as we can understand a, a kind of human vocation to a kind of knowing and loving of ourselves, of one another, of the world as finite reflections of God, as participating in, in God's work, um, there is a kind of bridge that, that can lead us outside and beyond this fragmented world of, of specialized disciplines. It, it opens the door to attitudes of awe and wonder and empathy but also to kind of thoroughly normative and engaged form of scholarship. There's, I think, something at stake in what we do. The flourishing of humankind, the flourishing of the world is at stake. We need to become more articulate about these things, uh, both in the humanities and across the disciplines. Uh, and I think there, there are tools here to think about how we're answerable for ourselves and for the world, how we are the point at which the universe has, has woken up, right? These, these kind of hairless, hairless bipeds that are very conflict prone, but also hyper cooperative. I mean, we're the point at which the universe can kind of reflect back on um, what this is all about and what, what's it for. Right. Yeah, this is one of the places I thought what you're doing here is, is super fecund, right? Super rich, uh, you know, the kind of gesturing towards the future directions of theology. Um, and, and naturally, um, the question of natural law came up. Uh, and I want to read this, the way you formulate it, because I think it's especially important. Um, you talk about the natural law, as you talk about it, not as, quote, an attempt to deduce action guiding moral principles from empirical study of human nature, but instead as a way of affirming what you call coherence and self-transcendence in our various activities and projects. So could you help us understand that a bit more? Yeah, well, so I think unfortunately the language of natural law um, 
one has to work hard to make it speak to many audiences today, but it, it's been such a, such a central form of discourse um, within the, the Christian European tradition just for, from, for millennia. So I, I do think maintaining some kind of a connection to that discourse is, is important. And there's this excellent work being done today that shows very much how central it was, for example, in the abolitionist movement. I mean, it's really picked up by um, thinkers like Frederick Douglass who's, who's, or, or James Pennington, who are very much um, appealing to the notion of a, of a natural law, which is a higher law, which stands in judgment on the the ways in which um, human, human laws and human societies and human practices are um, not recognizing equal human dignity and are oppressive. That's, that's, that's been an incredibly powerful uh, form of discourse. And I would absolutely see it as something that connects with um, this, this building tradition that I'm trying to unpack in terms of uh, Human, human, individual and collective responsibility for an ongoing critique uh, of our practices and vocabularies that's responsible to God, responsible to something higher and transcendent that, that um, is visible in very incomplete ways in, in, um, in what we inhabit, uh, in what's around us. So it's not, it's not, it's transcendent in its goodness and truth and beauty, but it's not wholly inaccessible to us. So let's talk about the liberal arts. Um, what do you think are the biggest challenges? And, and I'm asking you this in your role, your kind of dual role as academic dean, uh, but also as a scholar who thinks about these questions. A lot of people, of course, are talking about the humanities and liberal arts being in serious trouble. I'm also aware that you all just got a Nobel Prize in literature for the poet there. So how much trouble are we in in the liberal arts and humanities? How much of that is exaggerated, both in what you know across, the, uh, across higher ed in America, but also what you see at Yale University? Yeah, well, I mean, just in terms of the, the, the statistics, and there is a significant nationwide decline of students majoring in, in the humanities in particular and uh, of student enrollment in humanities courses. Uh, you know, I think it's very sobering to any humanist to actually look at those statistics. Um, at Yale, um, Yale is historically grounded, you know, centered in the, in the strength of the, uh, of the humanities and, and that remains true and, and the declines have been very slight at Yale. But I think you can't look at the nationwide statistics without yeah, you know, taking a deep breath and asking what, where, where we're headed. So, but in terms of how I think about that, I, I guess I see two primary challenges. And, and the first is that humanists are prone to the creation of technical vocabularies through which they're essentially broadcasting tribal identities oh. and bidding for status in the academy. And, you know, it's a very understandable dynamic. It's understandable because of the cultural authority of science. So there's this there's this desire to, to somehow emulate science if it's only through the erection of a kind of technical language that lay people have difficulty understanding. Um, it's also understandable just because human beings are immensely cre creative. You know, we take delight in 
creating new conceptual systems, new, new games, right? And so some of the work of the humanities is, is, um, is, is that kind of creative work. It's just, it, it's gonna be unintelligible to those who are not involved in the conversation because it uh, is, is generative of, of new ideas and new ways of looking at things. But when the discourse of the humanities becomes unintelligible in this way, it is a deeply problematic dynamic. I mean, fundamentally, students are not going to be drawn to courses that don't promise to help them grapple with significant questions concerning how to live well. Um, and the humanities should be doing that, right? And should be able to communicate how it does that. So, I mean, the second challenge that I see, and so the first one is this issue about intelligibility and just being able to communicate this commitment to, to flourishing. The second is that, that I think influential camps within the humanities have adopted a totalizing hermeneutic of suspicion that's felt to many like a denial of any truth, beauty, and goodness, or a robbing of meaning, of hope, of possibility. And I mean, I, I don't think that's actually accurate, but I do think we need to recognize how that is experienced by those who aren't participating in those discourses as a, as a kind of um, robbing of meaning and significance. So, but, I mean, it, fundamentally, I think the humanities are essential to flourishing, that they're essential to cultivating really key intellectual virtues that allow for complex thinking, that allow for deliberation about the common good, um, we can think about curiosity or humility or uh, discipline, attention to detail. So we need to be able to be more articulate about this, uh, be, be able to communicate it to our broader society and to our students. And that doesn't mean that we don't need to transform the canon. I mean, the canon should be broadened. It should be subjected to critical analysis. We need to understand the operations of power within our discipline. But ultimately, we have to also articulate how that's oriented toward reconciliation and, and mutual recognition and common flourishing. Let me uh, stay with, uh, I mean, I, I want to ask you later about the role of religion and, and specifically theological reflection in this but let me ask you more about what you just said about critique. So at one point you quote Judith Butler when she asked, who can I become in such a world where the meanings and limits of the subject are set out in advance for me? Mm -hmm. But you follow that with this. Yet critical theory can slip into a kind of idolatry of critique, which so dwells in the revelatory, revelatory tears in the fabric of our epistemological webs that it abandons the constructive task of forming humanity. That is of reweaving those webs in ways that better support our mutual recognition and shared life. Uh, you go on to talk about something you call um, carrying on under the sign of the eschatological reservation. Say more about this and, and return us to Bart along these lines. All right, well, if I lose some thread of that, just keep me, keep me back on track here. So first on, on, on critical theory, I mean, I think that there's a really key insight from critical theory, which is that it's easier to see what we need to be freed from, and we could call it domination, um, than, what we, than it is to see what we need to be freed for. 
The worry that I have is that when critical theory treats the conceptual systems that we inhabit as totalizing, as utterly defining our world, we become tongue-tied. There's a kind of mystification of what I regard as quite ordinary processes of imminent critique. So, you know, if conceptual systems were closed, then imminent, imminent critique would just go in circles. It would just reinforce the status quo. But I don't think that is, in fact, what we see happening. Conceptual systems are never fully closed. They, all, closed. they always have cracks. Critical theorists acknowledge the cracks. Um, they want to think kind of apophatically about the, the cracks or the glimmer of light that we see through the cracks or whatever. And I, and I want to go a little bit further than that, right? I want to say, and this kind of links back to this question of the natural law. We, we can appeal to the higher law or the natural law that, that stands in judgment on our actual laws. We can critique in the name of flourishing some, some particular norm of flourishing that we, that we see is actually just elevating a particular expression of the human as the norm of the human. Or, you know, in Bardian terms, we can listen for the word of God in and through all that we hear. So just to run with that, right, 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 right with the Bardian expression of this, um, in Bart, uh, in, my, in this book, um, comes in because on the one hand, he was, a, he was a staunch critic of the Bildung tradition. He accuses it of autocratic humanism. And there's nothing worse in Bart's book than autocratic humanism. Um, but, but he, I, I think, um, is rightly also seen as an imminent critic of this tradition, that he does in important ways stand within it. He talks about culture as a task. He talks about that task as the realization of humanity. I mean, this, this is the discourse of the Bildung tradition. Um, and it's the task of, of the realization of humanity in the face of what he calls a rift that goes through human existence. So here we get kind of a theological rendition of the cracks um, in, in the conceptual systems of domination that critical theorists are, are reaching for. So um, for Bart, we don't just have this task of, of, of culture or of, of, of realizing humanity in the face of, of sin and fallenness, but we also have the promise of God's affirmation of life and communion with God's self. So we have in, in Bart a, a theologically grounded and incarnationally grounded affirmation of, of, um, of hope, of the possibility of hope. So that's a reason to always encounter culture as potentially revelatory, as showing how the, the, the wholeness or the unity that we have currently arrived at is false and incomplete, uh, while still sustaining us with the promise of, of, of true belonging, of true communion. So it's eschatological in the sense that it it points us always beyond where we are now in a way that can fund critique while also sustaining hope. And that's, that's essentially the stance that I think is the one that we need to inhabit. Yeah, when I was reading this book this time, it reminded me, you know, we have the dialectical part who's calling down idols, this, that, and the other, but you also have, he has entire large volumes where he spends very careful, detailed readings of, you know, 
this or that 19th century figure. You know, looking for, I love the way you described it, kind of looking at the cracks, where's the light getting in? Where do we claim it? You know, where do we find available light? So yeah, I, I, that was super helpful. What about the distinction at this point in contemporary higher ed between, you know, what is called religion and theology? Where, where is its place in all this? You spent time at um, Christian institutions, Yale Divinity School, Notre Dame, uh, but you've also spent places, uh, time at um, secular institutions, Oberlin, Princeton University. Um, how do we think about these notions, um, especially when they sometimes carry a, a strong kind of normative edge where people you know, may get nervous? So how, do we, how do we think about those kinds of questions? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to be kind of at a school where there is a very strong uh, uh, school of theological education, divinity school, and uh, a department of religious studies. I, I think we're at a moment where we've moved past, at least in my institutional context, we've moved past the notion that, that proper, um, sec the proper secular study of religion is somehow non-normative and as an acknowledgement that normativity is threaded through all that we do. Um, so I think that particular, um, th there are still holdouts, but I think that, that we're maybe over the hump in terms of that particular conversation. But there are other versions of that unease. I mean, I think it fundamentally boils down to the fact that um, religious studies is, is still a quite a young discipline, that it doesn't have methodological unity, um, and that it's kind of jostling for position among the other humanities discipline and liberal arts disciplines more broadly. Um, and, and since that is felt to be a sinking ship, it, it, it becomes all the more difficult to struggle. And from the perspective of that struggle to be associated with theology, which is um, in the context of most secular universities, um, not only not the queen of the sciences, but not, you know, not recognized as an academic discipline at all. Um, that sort of association is a, is a undermined status. I mean, I really think that that's the, that's the kind of issue that we're dealing with. I mean, what's what's ironic about it is that at the same time, there's so much interest in theological discourse from all sorts of angles within political theory. Um, there's interest in from from psychology, from sociology, all sorts of interest in kind of breaking down some of these um, uh, some of the disciplinary distinctions that, that have made it impossible for us to answer or, or pursue a certain interesting questions. So I, I think that's really an interesting moment. Yeah. yeah, mindful at your university, you guys have what I read, I think in the New York Times, one of the largest classes in America, a class in psychology and happiness. Uh, and, you, and you very much get the sense that students are looking for these kinds of uh, ways of thinking about our world and our lives in it. So. So let's talk about Hegel. Um, Hegel plays a huge role uh, in the book. You said earlier, uh, in reference to an earlier book of yours, someone asked, you know, uh, what about Hegel? When are you gonna talk about Hegel? And you certainly do a lot of that here. Hegel and, and Herder really kind of approximates, uh, approximate your kind of constructive vision of ethical formation. 
but you also have some pretty critical things to say about Hegel. And you find that um, the kind of, there's a kind of necessity for God to permit evil as a way for God to become God. Um, uh, and you also worry very much about his picture of say black becoming uh, as if slavery and enslavement and colonization are requirements for that becoming. So unpack for us kind of what Hegel is doing in this book, how you're thinking about Hegel in these formulations. Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, first off, I think it's really important to acknowledge that Hegel has a notion of the imminent trinity as standing above and beyond the historical process. So there, there are a lot of popularized readings of Hegel that tend to reduce God to the development of Geist or spirit in history. And that's, that's, you know, that's not quite right because there is, there is this imminent trinity. So his view is more interesting than that. But what is true is that he regards the imminent trinity as incomplete. And so that's a, that's a critical departure from a Christian logic of creation, which is always affirming creation as an utterly free gift out of divine abundance. So divine perfection, divine completion. There's no sense in which... God is incomplete um, prior to creation and prior to the inauguration of history. So the way this works out in Hegel, it, it makes the historical process necessary to divine self-realization. You have to move from the imminent Trinity to make the Trinity real and the Trinity becomes real in, in history. And this um, it makes the historical process bear too much weight, weight, weight that it really shouldn't be made to bear. Uh, and, and in particular, it, uh, because of the way that, because of um, Hegel's uh, philosophy of history and the way that it moves dialectically, historical evils, things that he himself calls evil, like slavery and colonial rule, he calls at the same time um, historically, historically good or historically necessary. They're, they are um, justified by the way that they participate in this historical dialectic, a historical dialectic that not only just not only moves human history forward or moves civilization forward, it's also moving God forward um, because of the way he conceives of, of the imperfection of the imminent trinity. So, you know, he certainly assumes that realized humanity looks an awful light, lot like an, a 19th century German male. Um, uh, he's also uh, assuming that that means that slavery and colonial empire are in some sense justified because how else are you going to move these people um, toward um, that, that realization of humanity? I mean, this is the this is really the, the dark, dark side of, of the Bildung tradition. And I try to give it full weight um, while still um, trying, to, trying to show this process of, of redemptive reading of, of, our, of our intellectual traditions that I think we're always, we always have no choice but to, to perform. When I read that, I... Um was reading through the chapter, I looked through a number of your footnotes and I, you know, you, you mentioned American pragmatism. Of course you studied at Princeton uh, with Jeff Stout. Um, a number of your formulations, I saw similar kinds of things going on in Brandom's recent book on Hegel. Um, but I also saw a critical intervention um, that 
you know, American pragmatists like Cornell West have said that we need, you know, a little bit more of what he calls the tragic sense of life. And you have this in your critique of Hegel um, and the kind of communal life that you imagine, but you, you continuously talk about these forms of acknowledgement. Um, we're not just passing over the rough spots in order to get to a better synthesis. Um, so I wondered how you thought about when you're working on this book, um, how you imagined yourself in relationship to the American pragmatist tradition in your background, how you're thinking about these questions. And, and I'll come back and ask you more about the present moment in democracy, but certainly the American pragmatists at Princeton have thought about American pragmatism in terms of democracy. So talk to us about this book and that tradition that you come out of. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I would say that what I am taking from both Hegel and from uh, this American pragmatist tradition is this notion that we are formed self-formers um, who have to take responsibility for the conceptual vocabularies and practices that have formed us, even though they are tainted in various ways. And I think that the, what, what you're sort of alluding to is um, the critique that has been made that too often uh, the tradition of American pragmatism has not been sufficiently attentive to the workings of power. Um, and I, I, I think certainly if, if we uh, think about the critique that I've just leveraged against Hegel, this is, is really important to bring out. And certain strands of the American pragmatist, pragmatist tradition, probably the Deweyan strand in, in particular, um, I, think, I think it's fair to say. So maybe, maybe we could say that part of the ways in which I'm trying to productively draw on, on critical theory is in a way to, to underscore the, this, this point that imminent criticism does not mean that you're just kind of tidying up, as you, what did you say, just like smoothening over the rough spots. Um, but in fact, it's, uh, and, and this is, this is a, a theological claim as well, right? That, that imminent, imminent criticism is, is the way in which we as, as created, uh, beloved, fallen um, creatures have the kind of access that we have, imperfect though it is, to, to the judgment of God, to the word of God, to, to the higher law, the natural law. And, and it's always imperfect. It's always just a matter of saying, um, hmm, this, this is inconsistent with this other thing that we, both of which we thought we were committed to. Uh, and, and then we recognize that, oh, our notion of humanity is really just um, painting um, everyone in our own image. Or we, we recognize that, um, oh, I, I see that I have certain, certain privileges that I, I have ignored that, ignored that I actually possess and they've been invisible to me. And how does this lend uh, itself to democracy um, in terms of the national character and the ability to ask and uh, require questions of one another? How do, how do you think about these in terms of democracy? It, well, in, ter in terms of our, our present moment and the, and the challenge, the real challenges that are facing democracy. Very, very real. And they seem to be piling up even more as of late. No kidding. Yes. So I think we, we need to take with absolute seriousness, the phenomenon of, of populist ethno-nationalism. Um, and taking it seriously means 
on the one hand, of course, trying to prevent, address, remedy the evils that they seek to perpetrate, but it means more than that. It means that we also have to try to understand what drives people to embrace ideologies like this. And, and I think at least part of the story is this, that there are large numbers of people who feel somehow derided, feel despised, feel left behind by globalization. And they are longing for a sense of home, a sense of respect, self, sources of self-respect and respect from others, a sense, of, a sense of belonging. They feel somehow they've been robbed of that, robbed of um, the image of the nation that they had, uh, that they saw their lives as being devoted to in a way that was meaningful. And so for some of them, their remaining sources of, of self-respect are bound up with pride in being white and, or being male, or being male and white. And they see these things, they feel these things as being under immense threat, even as they continue to hold a great deal of privilege, right? So this kind of irony that they feel this loss of privilege when in fact they still continue to have quite a, quite a lot. So I think, I think people like this are really vulnerable to nationalist and race, um, racist ideologies because they promise to at least fix a target uh, for pain and resentment. Yeah. And when, you, you know, when you're hurting that much, you, 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 you feel better if you can lash out in some way. So I think we have to address this erosion of self-respect and meaning and belonging. Yeah. And what does that look like? Well. I think part of it is affirming the dignity of, of, of work, right? of ordinary work, um, the significance and the, the value of contributing to the common good just by virtue of doing the rounds, <laughs> that that can be a meaningful life. And that this isn't about affirming the, the meritocratic American pipe dream, right? which has let so many people down. It's not dreams and hard work can take you to riches and success. It's just um, affirming that you can have a meaningful life, a life of, of belonging that builds up the social fabric, right? that contributes to the common good. So we have to move beyond just uh, trumpeting, again, our, our kind of denunciations of the evils to trying to find vocabularies that can affirm something that's within reach that can restore restore a sense of dignity and belonging and i you know i think this is engaging in the real work of building this is real this is real formation for humanity uh, and it it's it, it's uh, it's hard work it takes takes us beyond just kind of easy, easy name calling. Well, we are certainly in your debt, uh, Professor Hurt, and uh, this book in terms of its ability to both illuminate the challenges in front of us, but give us a really kind of hopeful, wonderful, um, really eminently available um, picture of, of what ethical formation uh, looks like in this time. So thank you again for this book, uh, the great gift of it, um, and for your time this afternoon. Thank you. It's been an absolute delight. I really enjoyed the time with you. Thank you.